your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. We're all originals. You've all made America better, a better place, and you've made it seem a better place in the eyes of the people of the world. I'm Ian Wilder. I'm Fiona Hatch. I'm Sarah Nels. I'm Tyler Katzenberger. And I'm Allison Keeley. You're listening to 1050 Bascom, a podcast brought to you by the UW-Madison Political Science Department. On this episode of 1050 Bascom, we're happy to welcome back Yoshiko Herrera, a professor of political science here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who specializes in research on Russian politics, nationalism, and identity. Professor Herrera's work specializes in Russian politics and U.S.-Russian relations, and she is joining us today just weeks after the Wagner Group's March on Moscow. We talked to the professor about how this unprecedented situation could transform the war in Ukraine, Putin's rule in Russia, and daily life for Russian citizens for the foreseeable future. We thoroughly enjoyed our conversation with the professor. We hope you'll enjoy too. Well, thank you so much for joining us again on the podcast, Professor. We're always happy to have you here. Before we dive a little bit deeper into the events happening in Russia right now, could you give us a brief description and update of what the situation in Russia looked like before the events of the last few weeks when the March on Moscow took place? Sure, and thanks for having me. I'm happy to talk to you and your listeners. So the situation before the mutiny slash attempted coup was that the Ukrainian spring offensive had begun somewhat um, at a slow pace for various reasons. But more importantly, on the Russian side, there was a lot of disgruntlement between the Wagner private military company and the main Ministry of Defense Russian Armed Forces. And something that is, in retrospect, important is that there was a decision to dismantle Wagner and to have all the Wagner troops sign contracts with the Ministry of Defense. So this would effectively have ended Wagner as a, as a private military company and as a separate operation. So the head of Wagner, Yevgeny Prigozhin, very upset about that decision. He complained about it. He also very strongly complained about the Minister of Defense, Sergei Shoigu, and about the Chief of General Staff, Gerasimov. And he complained about the way the war was being managed. And he, a week before the kind of mutiny, he put out a video saying that the reasons for the war were also false. The reasons given to the Russian public were false, that there wasn't an attack on Russian citizens, that there wasn't any kind of genocide. And he basically suggested that the war, the war was waged under false pretenses, which is pretty serious criticism, along with his very strong language and very strong criticism of Shoigu and Gerasimov. So that was kind of like building in terms of his criticisms, plus the impending dismantlement of Wagner, which was supposed to take place as of July 1st. Those were things that were kind of building, although I don't think anybody anticipated the events as they exactly unfolded. So who are the main players here? Can you start by telling us a little bit about what the Wagner Group, or for our listeners, the military group that marched on Moscow actually is? Yeah, so Wagner is a private military company. There are a few other so-called private military companies, but even though the first word in the label is private, they're entirely state-funded. 
So Yevgeny Prigozhin, sometimes people refer to him as Putin's chef. And that's kind of funny, but I mean, the bigger picture is that, number one, he was a criminal in prison in the Soviet Union. He was released early at a time when early release usually meant cooperation with the KGB, FSB. That's why you would be released early. He's from St. Petersburg. So he was a criminal. This is important because he recruits people from prisons and he knows the prison system, the prison lingo, prison norms, prison culture. So he has this true life prison experience. Then I think it's more fair to say he is a, quote, businessman in the sense that he got contracts from the Russian government for different things, including providing food to the Kremlin and also to the military. So you can imagine, like, it's an enormous operation. He's taking a cut of that. He had a lot of other kinds of businesses that he was involved in and each thing he would take some money from. So he's reputed to be a billionaire. Um, but Wagner, in addition to so his businesses, the food service, etc., Wagner operated in different countries, including in some African countries, as a mercenary operation. So a government that needed some military might could hire Wagner as mercenary group to, to help prop up their regime. There's other mercenary groups in the world. But the thing about Wagner is 100% of its money came from the Russian government. So it's not an independent entity, say, hired out by, you know, let's say the government of Mali or something, that then they get money. The government of Mali contracts with the government of Russia, and the government of Russia then gives money to Wagner. So Wagner has always been totally dependent for all of its money on the Russian state, even though it's a separate operation from the Russian military. Um, but Wagner and Prigozhin, Prigozhin used to deny that he had anything to do with Wagner. In fact, he sued journalists in the UK for suggesting that he was the head of Wagner. He sued them for libel. So for a long time, he said, I don't know anything about Wagner. Like, who knows about Wagner? And people have studied Wagner in different ways, and they knew he was involved, but he always denied it. Until Wagner got involved in the Ukraine war, then he was willing to take credit. But the strange thing is that Wagner was kind of this offshoot group used by the Russian government to do things where they could deny that they were actually involved. So they make a deal with, with the dictator, say, you know, we'll help you out. But we won't say we're sending Russian troops to help you out. We'll say, you know, we don't know anything about it. And like, oh, look, at here's this Wagner group. We don't know anything about them. Like, look, at they're operating there and helping you out. So it's kind of a deniability mechanism by having this private company. And they were not in direct competition, per se, with the Russian armed forces because the whole point of Wagner was to deny that the Russian armed forces were involved. So they were operating separately, not in places where the Russian military was operating. But with the start of the Ukraine war and when the war wasn't going well, they brought in Wagner as kind of like special forces to, you know, help out. But there's also a power struggle going on between Wagner, Shoigu, Gerasimov, etc., and that's when they were low on, on men to fight, they allowed Wagner to go into jails and get prisoners out of jails, including people who were HIV positive, who had hepatitis, who had tuberculosis, other things for which they were not getting medicine in jail. And so they were sort of facing a death sentence in jail. So these prisoners leave, join Wagner, and then they're treated extremely poorly. They're treated literally as cannon fodder, um, just going out as like human D-minors, you know, going in. I mean, they're just treated very badly. So the rate of casualties among 
these conscripted prisoners and Wagner is very high. And this is kind of okay with the Russian regular armed forces because like, oh, well, why do we want our guys? I mean, Russian armed forces are getting significant casualties too. But Wagner is still kind of okay because they're taking a lot of losses and they're not really directly competing. But then Prigozhin, I think, as part of his power struggle, wants to show that he's more capable than the regular army. But anyways, okay, that's all background to Prigozhin saying like, hey, we showed that we could actually win this battle of Bakhmut. We're the ones that are doing a good job here, and therefore we should get the money, the weapons, the supplies, etc. Meanwhile, Defense Minister Shoigu Gerasimov are like, oh, this guy, he's so annoying, you know, because he's now countering us. He's making us look bad, and he's going on his YouTube using absolutely foul language against them. I mean, just the worst possible terms of criticism and just getting away with it. And a lot of people were saying like, well, why is he, why are they letting him do this? And I think in retrospect, it's because they weren't able to stop him because he actually did have a lot of legitimacy among his troops and they, they couldn't stop him. So he's becoming more and more of an irritant to the main Russian armed forces and he's demanding more and everybody's kind of trying to figure out, like, does he really have the loyalty of Putin? Does Putin support him? Uh, why is he able to do what he can do? Is he, he's complaining he's not getting supplies. He's complaining he's being attacked, etc. So there's like clearly this big power struggle going on. But for Wagner, as you're getting through June, like things are getting dicier and dicier because with this directive that they need, their soldiers need to join the regular sign contracts with the regular Ministry of Defense, it looks like it looks like Prigozhin is losing. It looks like in the power struggle, Shoigu and Gerasimov have won, and he's, he's going to have to be dismantled. So as we're getting into June, you know, what Wagner is, is supposedly 25,000 troops, which is not nothing. Some are highly trained. Some are good fighters. A lot have been killed. Some are conscript prisoner types, but they're all working for money. And the Russian military is now, was now in June trying to like do something about Wagner, take it, take it apart. So this was like very tense and that led to suddenly on June 24th, this move by Wagner to the city of Rostov, which is in Russia. So they retreated from Ukraine into Rostov, amazingly meeting basically no resistance into Rostov, the town of Rostov-on-Don. And Rostov is important because that is where the command for the whole Ukraine operation is. So the Russian command for the war is located in Rostov, in a building where Shoigu and Gerasimov supposedly were. And Prigozhin just marches right in there and meets with a couple of other generals. Shoigu and Gerasimov are nowhere to be seen. Um, he insults them further, saying Shoigu fled like a woman. So this is like crazy thing number one. Whoa, like they marched into Rostov. Like Wagner has marched into Russia. Like what are they doing? And then he's meeting with these two generals that's also on video. And they're also awkward, but not countering him. They're not saying we disagree. He's complaining further about Shoigu Gerasimov. And these high ranking generals are not doing, they're not 
really countering that. So later when Wagner starts marching on Moscow, so they go to Rostov, but part of the Wagner group starts heading up to Moscow. So Ravikin and another guy issue these videos saying like, come on, like, don't do that, stop and turn around. That's kind of strange. And they just keep going. And that's where everybody's staying up late trying to figure out like, are they going to get to Moscow? And they get within 200 kilometers of Moscow. And finally they stop, turn around and... Supposedly there is a deal that Prigozhin is going to go to Belarus, the Wagner troops are going to go to Belarus, and the whole thing is over. But in the meantime, Wagner forces claim that they were fired upon, and so they shoot down six helicopters and an airplane, killing 12 pilots, which is the biggest loss for the Russian air forces of any day in the whole war in Ukraine, and it happens from Wagner against the Russian forces. So that's that's a crazy thing. But still, everybody's trying to figure out, like, is it for real? Is it staged? Because it's just so so many strange things. Like, what's happening? Then Putin goes on TV saying, this is a stab in the back. This is really terrible. But then I think people within Russia are like, oh, it is a serious thing. Because look at Putin is on TV saying it was some kind of wrong thing happening. Before that, they could have said, oh, it was nothing. It was like some minor thing. Like, we were just uh, training or something. (laughs) Like, they could have said lots of things. Um, but when Putin went on TV, and he went on TV at, like late at night, he went on TV again the next morning. But then people knew it was a, a real something really had happened. But the strange thing is Putin said that the Wagner troops who joined the Russian armed forces will get amnesty. He didn't mention Prigozhin's name, but Prigozhin is going to Belarus. And there's no like arrest of Prigozhin or anything like that, even though he's a traitor. He's called a traitor, a backstabber, etc., Okay, supposedly he goes to Belarus, but no one hears from him. But also, where is Surovikin? Surovikin is the head of the Russian Aerospace Forces, the Air Force and Space Forces, and he had been, in October of last year, appointed the head of the whole war operations in Ukraine, replacing Gerasimov. Then Gerasimov came back to be in charge of it in January. So Surovikin, nevertheless, is like a very high-level guy, the head of the whole aerospaces. Where is he? No one knows. People think he might be under house arrest or some kind of detention. Where is Gerasimov? No one knows. Where is Shoigu? Shoigu finally showed up on TV and has been on TV. But the thing that's strange is who won this battle? It looks like Shoigu is still there. But given the Prigozhin complaints, given that Prigozhin had some support If Shoyu and Gerasimov would have been fired, it would look like Prigozhin was right. If they stay in their place, the reason Prigozhin had support is because his criticism of them was somewhat justified. So that also looks bad. And there was some support, obviously, for Prigozhin. Otherwise, he would have faced some resistance along the way. So there's a lot of speculation. He has not been arrested because they fear what would happen if they go after Prigozhin. But it's it's unclear. But so far, Gerasimov and Surovikin are missing, and Shoigu is about. And Prigozhin, they said, he's not actually in Belarus. He's actually out and about in Russia somewhere. And the Russian press secretary said, we have neither the capacity nor the desire to detain him. So that's kind of a rambling summary of like what happened, but I think we can maybe delve into some more details. Yeah, we were wondering a little bit about what Russia's response has been thus far to this coup attempt 
And you touched a little bit on it, the way that Putin has been addressing it, but we're wondering a little bit just as a whole, maybe the public opinion regarding this, and are you predicting any further governmental action? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Okay, so one, I should say, putting on my political science hat, there's some dispute over what it was exactly. And particularly, was it a coup? Because a coup would mean that Prigozhin was attempting to oust Putin, to like get rid of Putin. Prigozhin claims, I never ever thought of getting rid of Putin. I was just trying to do a good job in the war by pointing out the problems with the military command, namely Shoigu and Gerasimov, but I never had anything against Putin. I've always been loyal to him, etc. So if that's true, a lot of political scientists would call it a mutiny instead of a coup. Some people think Prigozhin's aims were unclear, or maybe it just kind of unfolded without a lot of thought put into it, like it was kind of an emotional thing. Like they got to Rostov, they couldn't find Shoigu, and they were mad, and so then they were like, okay, we'll go to Moscow. Although some people say they were already on their way to Moscow before, but what were they going to do if they had gotten to, to Moscow? So some people say it wasn't really a coup because he wasn't trying to change the government. It was more of a mutiny. But another thing that's interesting about coups from political science work is that a lot of coups do not entail a lot of violence because the people involved are really motivated to not fight each other. And you could see this, that the Russian armed forces and Prigozhin's troops, even though the, at the top, their top guys are fighting, they don't actually want to have violence between the Russian armed forces and Prigozhin's Wagner group. So. Because of that, everybody's motivated to kind of stop it before it gets out of hand. And I think there's some, some of that, that that was part of the negotiated settlement. But it doesn't really solve, like, was it a coup or not a coup? It kind of depends on what Prigozhin's aims were, and, and his aims are not totally clear. But anyways, whatever it was, potentially a coup or a mutiny, it has had a huge, I think, earthquake effect in Russia for a number of reasons. One... Putin has been telling a narrative for 23 years that there is nobody but me. If I wasn't in charge, it would be just total chaos. Like, I'm the only one that can manage the country. There's nobody but me. And he has systematically interfered in elections in order to not have any potential rivals be anywhere near coming to power. So this means anybody that is a potential candidate, he moves those people off stage through exile, attempted murder, jail. So he's done this not just with Alexei Navalny, who's in jail, but Gary Kasparov, the world chess champion, who's exiled. So he's always tried to push people out of the way, plus getting rid of governor elections, getting rid of mayor elections in major cities, so that there's nobody except for his clownish opposition. So Putin has always not just said, but tried to show there is no one but me to lead the country. And people kind of believe that, like he has all the power. He arrests all kinds of people. He arrests teenagers, he arrests artists. But now it's like, you know, actually, I guess they were pretty good at arresting students and artists and authors. But when it came to command of the military, he's facing a more serious threat than anybody had imagined. And the fact that they haven't arrested Prigozhin and that they allowed Prigozhin to do what he did suggests they don't have the ability to stop him. So I think the narrative of the invincibility of Putin has really been shattered. 
And this is not something that just it's going to result in an immediate change. But I think mentally, if people were thinking, like, how strong is this regime? Everybody today knows it's much weaker than you thought. So the mutiny attempted coup has just exposed the weakness of the regime, I think, enormously. But still, it doesn't mean the other things Putin has done, jailing the opposition, systematically going after any kind of organized party, group, etc., that's all in place. So there still is very minimal options for people that are trying to organize against him. There's certainly no parties or, or organized groups. And then within the bureaucracy and the elite, I think that there was always a lot of unhappiness with the war. I mean, there's a core of people in Russia that support Putin and support the war. So for sure, that's part of it. But there are a lot of people, I think, that don't support the war but do not feel empowered at all to do anything about it. The regime's response has always been that you're alone. They always have been pushing this disempowering narrative that, like, there's nothing you can do. And I think that's kind of now a little bit weaker in terms of a narrative because people see, like, well, look at this guy. He's a total criminal loon, and look where he got. So I think that the regime just looks much weaker, but it's still unclear what, what could happen. Along those lines, do you think that this is likely to be an isolated event, or is it possible that similar forms of behavior might manifest themselves in the future? Do you think it eventually could amount to something a little bit more like a coup attempt than what it was now, which was kind of a blurry situation? Yeah, I wish I had a good answer to this, but I think a lot of commentators on Russia, a lot of Russians believe that the Putin regime will only last a year or two max. But if you press them on, like, how will it go? Like, what's the way that Putin regime ends? Nobody can say how it will end. I mean, obviously, Putin could die. That would end his regime. But when you try to go through the options, they all sound unlikely, like another coup, some kind of revolt of the bureaucracy or the oligarchs, a social revolution... Everything seems unlikely because he's taken steps over the years to only surround himself with loyalists. It does look like there is declining support and there's definitely declining legitimacy and the economy in Russia is doing very poorly. So they're running out of money and they're running out of money to pay soldiers, to pay mercenaries, etc. So I can't say how it how could it end? But we could see a lot of signs of cracks in the regime. So I don't know. I don't know what could happen exactly. But I do think there's a lot of instability and disgruntlement in Russia. So that part of it, I think that part, we're, we can say with confidence that there's a, a lot of instability there. But without overstating that there are a lot of people in Russia that also are supporting the regime and supporting the war effort. Switching to a more broad perspective here, um, let's talk for a moment about U.S. and Russian relations with regard to the attempted coup. Does or did the U.S. play any role in the attempted coup, or has there been a response by the U.S.? So this is a really good question. It's always been a Russian propaganda point that anything bad is orchestrated by the U.S., so the social revolutions in Ukraine in 2004 and in 2013-14, 
they claim were orchestrated by the U.S. Um, they claim the U.S. handpicked the Ukrainian government. They claim all of the actions in Ukraine, the, all the victories, etc., that are the result of the fighting and efforts of the Ukrainian armed forces, that this is all thanks to, to the U.S. And, and NATO. So they always say the U.S. and NATO are behind everything. But I think, and that's like pretty much never true. For one thing, Prigozhin is himself a war criminal. I mean, he is a horrible human being. No one in their right mind would say, oh, yeah, he would be a great leader that we could support. So I just think it's like completely implausible that there's any U.S. support for Prigozhin. That said, certainly a lot of commentators who are anti-Putin would say, like, was I saddened to see discord in the Russian armed forces or to see that there is significant infighting between Prigozhin and the Ministry of Defense? No, I think that's good for the Ukraine war effort to have that disarray there. But that doesn't mean I would support Prigozhin as any sort of leader. And I think the U.S. response has been to, like others, like watch and see what happened. I mean, we're certainly tracking the movements of Prigozhin and his plane anyways. And also, you know, intelligence about what's happening. The U.S. has definitely been monitoring that. There was early reports from the U.S. that Surovikin was somehow knew about this coup plot in advance. And that was interesting because it would be in our interest to promote the idea that Surovikin is implicated in this because that would weaken his position and he was seen as a competent leader. And so we would be against having a competent leader on the Russian side in the military command there. But his detention by Russia makes it seem like, well, maybe there is something to that. And it wasn't just a propaganda talking point from the Ukrainian or, or U.S. side. So I think that the U.S. response has been to you know, monitor the situation, but we certainly didn't have any role in it directly. But the other thing is that the war in Ukraine continues to go on. So this, like so far, what we've been talking about is the internal situation in Russia. But the war in Ukraine, in a certain way, is kind of on autopilot on the Russian side. So we're in the middle of this Ukrainian offensive, which is very hard because Russians have built up very strong defenses. Meanwhile, Russia's operations are to do the same thing they've been doing before, which is to bomb or send missiles, lob missiles into civilian cities, killing civilians. So from the Russian side, they're kind of doing what they're doing, which is firing missiles onto Ukrainian cities and killing civilians and just uh, digging into their defensive positions. So all this intrigue in Russia hasn't dramatically changed what Russia is doing in Ukraine. And if anything, there's been like an increase in the civilian casualties in the last week. And then this potential for Zaporizhia is really, really terrible. So I think from the broader perspective, it's like a lot of intrigue within Russia, but it hasn't, I think it's been more important for domestic support for the war and for Putin within Russia and really important for the military command structure, but not as important for how the war is being prosecuted in Ukraine and not so important for um, what the Ukrainians are doing or what the NATO and U.S. and European allies are doing. Yeah, so you mentioned NATO and other European allies, and we were wondering how the international community has responded to the atrocities happening in Ukraine. 
Yeah, unfortunately, I think at this moment, I'm not feeling very satisfied with the international response on a couple of points. One is, okay, on the plus side, in terms of international action, Russia has become more and more isolated since they started this war. So they virtually have no strong supporters other than Iran and North Korea. Even China has not been fully supportive. They have not militarily supported Russia, which is really important. And they have made comments repeatedly about how they oppose the use of nuclear weapons um, in this war. There's some support from India, from Mexico, from certain countries. But I'd say, like, on balance, Russia is very isolated compared to where it was. And in UN votes, Russia is not getting the support of countries that even that they used to reliably um, count on. European countries and NATO countries in the EU and the U.S. have been very strong supporters of, of Ukraine and against Russia, and that has only strengthened. When Russia started the war, they thought they could maybe play this energy card and get Europe to support Russia because they wanted cheaper energy supplies. That has not um, materialized at all, and European resolve against Russia has only strengthened. So on the plus side, Ukraine has gotten a lot of support from more support than people thought at the outset from countries like Germany, certainly from the U.S. and the U.K., which are the strongest supporters, but a lot of other countries have chipped in as well. But has Ukraine gotten the support that it's needed? And I think, like, at this point, there is one way that the war ends, and that is that Ukraine gets the supplies it needs to win the war. That is, I think, the only way that the war ends. And if we want to end the war sooner, we need to ramp up significantly the scale and speed of our support for Ukraine. And I know that we have already, in America, given a lot to Ukraine, but I think we already understand the situation, which is that Russia is going to continue killing civilians, damaging civilian infrastructure, and they're going to do that as long as, as they can. And they have little capacity to make any offensive gains. And so if this goes on another year, it's going to be another year of civilian losses plus military losses on both sides. And so to end it, I think we need to just ramp up that support. As we're starting to wrap up here, and as we're looking at all of these ripple effects of how this attempted coup slash mutiny has affected everything from Putin's rule, the war in Ukraine, international perceptions and responses, what do you think these effects might look like on daily life in Russia for the average Russian civilian? Is anything going to change there? I think probably for most Russian citizens, there's not a dramatic change in daily life. But as the economy worsens, the ruble is kind of falling these days. I think a lot of people are trying to survive, trying to just continue with what they have been doing. Now, some people post pictures of restaurants and nightclubs that are full and people celebrating and just going on like nothing has happened. And that's obviously disheartening. But I think that for a lot of people, they understand things have changed in that they cannot travel outside the country. They cannot buy various imported things that they used to have. So I think that's kind of ongoing, but it's not a dramatic shift. It's more of a slow shift. But 
because of the sense of disempowerment, a lot of people may think, like, even if the economy is going downhill, and they know that, even if they dislike the government, they don't feel there's that much they can do. And some people's reaction to that is to just disengage and not follow the news and not pay attention. And that's obviously disappointing and upsetting to a lot of people in Ukraine. I think it's also the case that there's not, it's a long-term process in Russia of creating the political conditions that Putin has created. So it's hard to see that really dramatically changing overnight. Is there anything that we haven't talked about yet that you think we should? I guess I think something that I think that's been interesting, even though I work on Russia, is to really pay attention to what's happening in Ukraine. And one of the things that I think is, to me as a political scientist, the most interesting is the massive, widespread kind of growth and blossoming of civil society in Ukraine related to the war. Every person is doing something that they can to try to support the war effort. And the level of creativity and innovation by young people or people just from all walks of life doing things is very heartening and kind of amazing to see people coming together in the face of the such a difficult situation. So I guess I think that um, level of civil society development is, is kind of, I mean, it's in the context of a tragedy, it's heartening to see people working so hard to try to preserve their country and to try to work together to support each other. So I think that's something that is interesting and probably we'll end up following that for some, some time. I like that. That's a really nice yeah. note to end on. Yeah, yeah, yeah we always welcome. appreciate having you on. Thank you. Thank you very much.